the degree to which I disown, shame, hide, and don't acknowledge all of the racism that exists inside of me is the degree to which it still controls me. Getting Discomfortable with Racism Watching the news this past week, I've been feeling sick to my stomach, feeling just hopeless and overwhelmed and kind of having this desire to contribute positively in some way, and yet feeling like having just no idea what to do, how to contribute how to be a meaningful part of a solution to this issue that just seems so entrenched and hopeless. And so as a result, I was just doing nothing. I wasn't, I wasn't helping, I wasn't posting, I wasn't donating. I was just like frozen in inaction, which in itself was super shamey and felt like complicit and privileged and like, well, lucky me, I can just sit at home and do nothing. And really, the only effect it has is that I feel shameful about it. But that's how it was. I just was like, I just don't want to do anything. I just like, fuck it all. I just, it's, it's all a mess. Like a kind of like just giving up on the whole world kind of feeling. And then a couple of interesting connections came together for me. One was that a friend invited me to attend his AA meeting online, which I'd never been to, though, of course, I have talked about it on the podcast before and interviewed someone who is a member of AA. And it was a really eye-opening experience. There's something really powerful about AA. And having been to a meeting now, I think it's, it's really about community and honesty and it's this counter-shaming environment where you can just be completely honest about these issues of addiction and behavior that would get you judged or fired or rejected in all these other scenarios. And in an AA, everyone just listens respectfully. In fact, like built into most AA meetings is this idea of no crosstalk, which means you don't give advice, you don't interrupt someone, you don't ask them questions, you don't speak to them directly, you just focus on your own issues, you know, one at a time. And it's it creates this non-judgmental environment where you have people showing up in all kinds of different ways. Some have been sober for like decades, and some have been using that very day. And they all just kind of like hold space together. and. There's something cathartic and healing about being able to be honest about these issues for a change around other humans and to feel a sense of connection and community because of it, a sense of non-judgment, a sense of not only are we not going to like judge you, but we're not going to race in and try to fix you either. It's your responsibility. It's this very boundaried situation where everybody looks after themselves and anything you're going through or bringing is okay. 
So that was sort of the first piece of the puzzle. The second piece is my work with shame in general. You know, one thing I've found about working with shame is that talking about the things I'm ashamed of has never been the wrong choice. Like every time I'm ashamed of something and I just fucking talk about it, it is so healing. It, it, like things just feel so much better because it's like the shame shrouding an issue keeps it kind of hidden and confused. And when I pull it up into my consciousness, especially when I speak it out in front of another person, it's this opportunity to kind of become more self-aware and to own it and explore it. And I come out the other side having a lot more kind of power over myself. I have this ability to understand myself, to control myself, to manage myself in a way that I didn't have before when I let that shame issue kind of fester in secrecy, silence, and judgment, to quote Brene Brown. And one of the issues over the last few years that has had the most utility for me to talk about is homophobia. I am gay and I am homophobic. I am both of those things at once. And it, it's really obvious to me because that homophobia affects me so directly. It's like I am these two self-hating things at once. One of them on this like cognitive level, like in my prefrontal cortex, I am openly gay. I am proudly gay. It is like one of the best things that happened to me. It feels natural and beautiful and and I'm like completely 100% accepting of it. But on another level, on an unconscious level, like somewhere in my limbic system or just in parts of my brain that are not quite as logical and easily accessed, there is all of these horrifying beliefs that being gay is disgusting and dirty and diseased and wrong and bad and pathetic and lesser. And both of those beliefs coexist. And they're both totally genuine. Like, they're, they're, they're both really real and honest. And they're complete opposites to each other. And they're in me. And sometimes it becomes really obvious because it creates this schism where I'm holding hands in public. And part of me is like, don't do this. It's unsafe. You look pathetic. You look weak. People are judging you. Don't show people this. And another part of me is like, this is so fun. This is so lovely. Like, look at this cute guy. I'm so lucky. I'm so proud. Both of those things are happening at once in two kind of different parts of my brain and body. And two things really kind of put this homophobia, this internalized homophobia in perspective. One of them was that I was having a conversation with a friend recently where I was telling him all about my homophobia and he was like kind of pitying me. Like I was getting a like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. Like, oh, I'm so sorry you have to deal with that. It sounds awful. That sucks. And I was like, wait, wait. <laughs> it's not just me who has this internalized homophobia. You were raised in the exact same culture as me. So almost certainly you have all the same conditioned homophobia. And my friend was like, no, no, not at all. No, I am completely on board with gay rights. I have no problem with gay people. Like, I don't feel uncomfortable around you or gay people at all. Like, you're absolutely wrong. 
And and I want to, you know, name that it is shaming if I insist that I know for sure what the contents of someone's brain is. I can't, you know, I can't say for sure that anyone is definitely conditioned with homophobia. That being said, <laughs> I'm pretty much convinced that anyone else who was raised in homophobic Western culture has some level of homophobia conditioned into them, whether they realize it or not. The fact is, if you're not gay, you're not going to have to confront that conditioning nearly as much as I do, where the two interact in this volatile way inside of me on like a daily basis. But if you're not gay, that conditioning can be very dormant because it's not being activated in the same way. So for my friend, like, yeah, maybe he never has contact with that conditioned homophobia. But I have a hunch that if he went home to his whole family and told them that he was gay, that he might feel some of that conditioned homophobia come up inside of him. He might It might come up in the form of, of fear and worry and this like sick feeling in his gut that I have been feeling lately around the issue of racism. He might have that. Or if he were to go and kiss a guy in a busy mall or hold hands or kind of like cuddle with a guy in public. In those situations, if he looked inward, he might then discover, oh, actually, this is uncomfortable. There are a bunch of messages about my masculinity and therefore my strength and my value as a human coming to the surface. But because he's never in those situations, he's maybe not in touch with it. So, you know, I can't say I'm not psychic. I don't know for sure. But it is my imagining that most people in Western culture have been conditioned with homophobia, and they just may not realize it. And no amount of you being pro-gay in your prefrontal cortex necessitates that that conditioning does not exist. You can have both at once, as I prove to myself on a daily basis. Another incident, which I think I may have talked about on the podcast before, was that I was talking to a man in his 60s, and he was telling me a story about being hit on by other men in some scenario. And he said to me, I mean, like, I'm not homophobic, but... And I was just, I just stopped, and I was like, in my own head, I was like, wait, so I'm like half your age, completely different, much more open-minded generation, and I am gay, and this man was straight, and I am still homophobic. And you, uh, essentially a baby boomer from a, a much more conservative generation who is a straight man, is telling me that he's not homophobic. I just don't buy that. I just don't. I'm like, the, the truth is probably that while you have no conscious problem with gay people and you're a complete ally and you have lots of friends who are gay, that nonetheless, somewhere deep down inside, there is some homophobic conditioning, and it probably got activated by the fact that all of these men were hitting on you. So, like, the really self-aware, authentic share would be something like, you know, AJ, I am so, like, I have fought for gay rights my whole career, but when a man comes up and hits on me, it does activate something in me from my past, like my conditioning, that it makes me quite uncomfortable. These messages of homophobia that I got in my youth, they're still in me somewhere. You know, that's just the truth. And to be honest, if that's what he had said, something like that where he owned his homophobic conditioning, I would have felt a lot more validated. I would have trusted him more. I would have felt like, 
every time someone tells me that they're not homophobic, I feel a little bit gaslit. I'm like, really? Why am I saddled with this conditioned, internalized homophobia that I did not choose and that I do not want and that I fight against consciously every day? Why am I saddled with that? And you're telling me that you don't have that. It makes me feel crazy. It makes me feel worse. And so I'm sort of reverse engineering this to look at racism and say, there is no question that I am completely conditioned with racism. And the people of color out there who are experiencing it in these really subtle ways every day, and some not so subtle ways, obviously, as we're seeing in the news right now, that actually it might be really valuable to them and to me if I just start to acknowledge and admit the ways in which I am conditioned with racism. To say, yeah, you know what? You're not crazy. You're right. I'm full of racism. I am. And as with my shame, when I talk about my homophobia, it helps me. I feel like I am in better relationship with my internalized homophobia all the time. Every time I talk about it out loud, every time I tell someone about it, every time I talk about it on the podcast, every time I face it in therapy, every time I journal about it, I get more and more aware of it and able to then counteract it or kind of control it or manage it or adapt to it so that it doesn't control me from the shadows of my unconscious. I mean, Brene Brown has a quote, which I'm going to paraphrase. Many people have said something similar to this, but it's essentially like the parts of ourselves that we own, we can control. And the parts of ourselves that we disown control us. I believe that so strongly, and I see that with my homophobia, and I see that with shame. So it stands to reason that the degree to which I disown, shame, hide, and don't acknowledge all of the racism that exists inside of me is the degree to which it still controls me. And, and this is what's happening in our culture. Because racism is so shamey and so shamed, I mean, it's probably one of the most shameful things you can be. It means that all of these people who are conditioned with racism, which, again, I'm not psychic, but I'm going to guess is literally everyone, everyone in Western culture, I'm imagining, and probably in every other culture as well. So literally everyone, I'm imagining, is conditioned with some amount of racism. I know that I am. And the fact that that is so shamey means that we bury that racism down into our subconscious. But in fact, from our subconscious, it is able to control us even more than if we just talked about it, looked at it, owned it, cataloged it, and put it into the light of our consciousness in the first place. And the reason that I say this is, you know, there's all of these stories of white people flying into a racist rage that is apparently totally counter to who they actually are or how they view themselves. They think that they are this really liberal, anti-racist person. But then all of a sudden, in a certain situation, they're saying the N-word 
like Michael Richards. You know, he's on stage being heckled, and all of a sudden, on stage, in front of an audience while being filmed, he's calling members of the audience the N-word. Or this woman in Central Park who starts calling the police on a bird watcher and literally threatening to paint him as a thug. What's going on there? I'm not psychic, but I am imagining that those people experienced shame. Michael Richards was being heckled. He goes into shame. And then shame is so uncomfortable that it immediately pushes us into our threat response system. The same with the woman in Central Park. This person asks her to leash her dog because this is an area where your dog is supposed to be leashed. She goes into shame. The shame is so uncomfortable, she immediately goes into her threat response. And in our threat response, our prefrontal cortex shuts off to some degree, and our ancient limbic system, our ancient amygdala, which is responsible for survival and threats and rewards and punishments, comes online. And it takes the contents, the deep contents of our unconscious, and weaponizes it against our better judgment. The kind of thing you would never say while your prefrontal cortex is online suddenly becomes a weapon that your amygdala realizes it can use to try to hurt this person. What better way to make yourself look better and above than to weaponize racism against someone? It's, it's a strategy that makes complete sense if you are someone's amygdala and you discover all of this racism hidden in the unconscious brain. That is the danger with not owning, talking about, and looking at our conditioned racism. In your most vulnerable, stressed out, frantic moment of trying to not feel shame, trying to protect your quote-unquote safety, or at least your social standing, that material, that shadow material is going to come out. And you are going to do something, or say something, or cause harm to someone in a way that is going to devastate the real you, you know, the logical you, the, the calm, sensible, compassionate you. You are going to betray all of your values and your image and your identity as this, this well-meaning, liberal, anti-racist person. That's what could happen if we don't own all of this racist shit inside of our brain. Because when we become more self-aware, when we become conscious of that material, from that self-aware place, you have a lot more choice points. You have a, a lot more control. But I want to note that it's not like that racist material goes away. When I look at my homophobia, like no matter how much I'm aware of it, no matter how much I explore it and think about it and logically counter it, it doesn't go away. I mean, like, maybe ever so gradually it's lessening. Like, maybe just a tiny bit it is. But that is happening at such a slow and gradual scale that it's almost negligible. And if my goal were to be to completely get rid of my internalized homophobia, then I would be failing and I would be frustrated and I would be shaming myself. The fact is, it is clear to me that the things, the beliefs, those, those strong emotional reactions around certain issues that we were conditioned with as children are here to stay. 
And so my homophobia is always there. And the best I can hope for is to be so aware of it that I can manage it and control it so that it doesn't control me. And it's the same thing with racism. I don't imagine that our conditioned racist beliefs from our childhood are going anywhere. It's, it's a chronic condition, racism. And so this expectation that you can not be racist, I think, is just false. It's an illusion. You can't not be racist, but you can be aware of it and work with it and manage it and counteract it consciously. You can have the intention in your prefrontal cortex of being anti-racist, while at the same time recognizing and acknowledging and working with the fact that you are, in fact, racist, just like everyone else. But that's not enough. Just acknowledging that you're racist isn't enough. Over the last week since I've been wrestling with this issue and since I went to that AA meeting, I've been actively cataloging all of the racist beliefs that I could find. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I'm racist and everyone's racist. No. I realize I actually need to go inside and do the extraordinarily uncomfortable work of finding specific, concrete examples of my conditioned racism and talking about them with other people, admitting to them, exploring them openly. And it is one of the most uncomfortable, shamey, emotional things that I've ever tried to do. It makes me feel sick. It makes me feel heartbroken, and then it makes me feel shame, and then I start judging myself. Oh, the tears of a sad white racist. Cry me a river. So, that you know, there's just like, there's just all these contradictory, shamey, painful feelings pushing and pulling in so many directions, like a snake eating its own tail, just trying to to deal with this material that is so unpleasant and yet so real and so permanent. And I want to be clear about the fact that as a child, I was explicitly taught that racism is bad. It's, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have parents that they consider racist or grandparents that they consider racist. And I know that pretty much everyone I know will admit that, like, our culture is at very least racist or steeped in white supremacy. But if I look back at my childhood, I was in a very, you know, liberal community and family that said racism was bad. From the very beginning, I knew racism was bad. Anti-Semitism was bad. I consciously knew that from a young age. So it's not like I was explicitly taught racism and then realized that that was bad. No. I was explicitly taught all along that racism was bad, and yet somehow it seeped in anyway. And I, how does that happen? I mean, I've been really trying to unpack that. I think it happens through media, for example. Like, every commercial and TV show you watch as a kid stars white people, the heroes are white people, the good people, the attractive people, the valuable people are white people. And it's not like there weren't other races, but they were often 
a caricature or a token. They were the funny black friend, or they were the comical East Indian grocery store owner, or they were the smart Asian girl. It was like it's okay to be that race, but you are secondary. You are not the hero. You are less valuable, and you are this kind of specific identity. You're not just anyone. You don't have the opportunity to be whatever you want to be. You have to be something really distinctly defined, and that is just like an inherent bias and prejudice right there. And what's more, given that I am conditioned with racism. That means that the people who were my parents and my teachers and my mentors, they're from a completely different generation that's even more racially conditioned, probably. So even though all of these people are telling me not to be racist, in probably subtle but powerful ways, their internalized racism is coming out and being absorbed by their children and their students. So you might lecture your kids about how not to be racist, but then we see the way our adult figures react out in the world. We we see who they warm to. We see who they avoid. We see the media that they like. We see the people that they find attractive. We see that the way they interact with shopkeepers and cab drivers and strangers on the subway. We see the people that they pull. You know, when your parents like suddenly yank you away from something. We see on an intuitive, like unconscious level, who it is that they yank us away from and who it is that they pull us toward. On some subtle, unconscious but powerful level, our body is rewarding us when we feel connection with our parents and punishing us. When we feel disconnection, and every time there's like an association with something that they don't like on an unconscious level that no one is communicating, we are feeling this unpleasantness, and that is conditioning us every single time. And then, of course, my peers—you know, my peers were openly racist when I was a kid, and they would say jokes like, "I, I remember there was this whole series of jokes about." Um, what do, what do you call a dumpster full of dead black people? And the punchline was a start. And I knew at whatever age that that was wrong, that that was bad. It made me feel sick. But at the same time, I really, really, really wanted to connect with my peers, and so I just inherently saw that there was value to joining with that kind of thing. And it's interesting. I, I actually I don't think I ever told any of those explicitly racist jokes, but I definitely joined in with homophobic jokes. In fact, to be fair, unlike the fact that I was taught explicitly not to be racist and it got in anyway, I was explicitly taught to be homophobic. No one said don't be homophobic when I was young. And the other kind of heartbreaking part of this is that you know over the years in my life I've been friends with someone of every single race, like genuine friends. And when it's on that individual level, the stereotypes kind of go away more or less. I think, like I have lots of friends of color now, and I don't think that I view any of them through this racist lens. They're just themselves. But when I look at a whole group, all of this racist material comes right back up. Like here's an example: I'm on the subway, 
and I see a black person dressed in a specific way. It's not just seeing any black person. It's when you combine two stereotypes that I suddenly become racist. A black person dressed like they're maybe homeless or they don't have a lot of money. And almost without thinking about it, as they pass me on the subway, my hand goes to touch my pocket to see if my wallet is still there. That is something that I have noticed many times on the subway. I'll just automatically touch my wallet and then I'll realize that it was because there was this black person passing by me. And that is just like a super clear sign, oh, I am conditioned with racism. Or another example, I'm walking down the street and I pass a black person. No big deal. But then you throw in another stereotype, like I'm walking down a dark alley and I pass a black person. And maybe they're dressed in a kind of hip-hop style and suddenly my racism becomes very clear and I get afraid and I feel nervous, like they're going to rob me or attack me or, or make fun of me. There's like this kind of belief as well, I think, that groups of black people will not want to connect with me, that, that they will not like me that they will not include me, that I am, I am their outgroup. And because I think that they don't want to connect with me, I go into shame and then I other them and I don't want to connect. I like, I'm like angry at people who I perceive as not wanting to connect with me. First of all, I have no idea whether they actually do or do not want to connect with me. And second of all, everyone has the boundary right to decide who they do and do not want to connect with. But it goes to show the power of shame and how so much of it is about who do we feel we can be connected to? Who do we feel we can belong with? Who can be part of our in-group? And who will have us in their in-group? And if we feel like there is this inherent disconnection purely because of race, that is a racial prejudice that is going to cause a lot of distrust and resentment. So I categorize that as racist as well. And as I've been going through these events, like on the subway or walking down the street, it has become so clear to me that mainly the way I look at the world is that there is this hierarchy of racial value. You know, in other episodes, I've talked about how as a child and, and still on some level, I, my body always looks at the world this way, that there is a fictional hierarchy of human value. And some people are at the top and some people are at the bottom. And I am trying to climb my way to the top by being successful or whatever I think I need to be. Well, I feel like race maps on to that fictional hierarchy. And at the very top are white people of course. But not just any white people, Aryan white people. Like it's literally the Nazi hierarchy is is conditioned into me somehow, such that blonde-haired, blue-eyed men who are tall and masculine and muscular and have square jaws, they are the most valuable, attractive, trustworthy, competent, good people in the world. Like on some level, that is what's in me. And then below them are other white people like me who aren't quite the ideal, who are too hairy or too dark or too short or whatever we are. 
And then below that are all the people of color. They are all less valuable in this conditioning that I have. And it's not like there's necessarily an order, like it's a bit of a jumble. What there is no question about is that if you are half white, you are higher up the hierarchy. It's almost like under white people are all the different varieties of people who can pass as white or who are half white. And I find when I am on Tinder, this is another example, it becomes so clear, my racism becomes so clear on Tinder because the people that I swipe right on are so predominantly white or white looking or half white. And you know, if you've ever been on Tinder, sometimes you just sort of swipe without kind of just like half looking. And when I am swiping on Tinder while just sort of half paying attention, Anybody who is not white is an automatic swipe left because it's just sort of like, yeah, well, probably not. But if I actually stop and look, then it's a little bit less white. But the fact is Tinder brings out the, the most superficial kind of racist, judgmental side of me. I like to believe that in person I find a lot more people attractive, and, and it is actually true. There are way more people that I find attractive in person who, if I saw them on Tinder, I wouldn't swipe right on them. Mm, that's, this, is, this is me trying to like justify and like I'm trying to like uh, stop you from judging and shaming me in this moment, but whatever. It is what it is. Judge me if you want. It's not a preference either. It's like something that I am, I am very consciously aware that I am not allowing myself to explore other possibilities outside of like these very narrow strictures of what I find attractive. And I've had experiences where people who are totally not my type, I've like met them and we've bonded and we've had like a really fun time together and all of this like flirtation and energy has come up. And because of that experience, I suddenly find people of that type attractive. So I feel like I am sort of like limiting myself and ignorant to all the different types of attraction I could be experiencing simply because I'm not exposing myself to enough different people. I'm, I'm not opening my mind up to the possibility that I could connect with them. And when it comes to Tinder, it just becomes so acute and obvious. And there's this really insidious message inside of me. This is just so awful. You know, I'll be on Tinder and I'll see a person of color and I'll be like, wow, this person's really attractive. And so then there's like this sense of like self-congratulatoriness that comes up that's kind of sickening where I'm like, good for me. I'm not just attracted to white people. See, which is its own sort of like, whatever, it's another issue altogether. But that's true. That comes up. But then there's this other message sometimes where I kind of like imagine myself being in a relationship with this person. And there's a judgment that comes up, not only within me, but I imagine other people thinking it as well. I imagine people looking at me and this person of color in a couple and thinking, I guess that's the best he could do. That to date a person of color was to compromise because within me is this hierarchy that says white is best, white is supreme. And if I'm not dating a white person, that means I couldn't, I guess this is all I could get. That I'm sort of like, I'm compromising and picking up the scraps. 
And that's, that is a message that is in me. And that is a message that I am projecting and imagining that other people are thinking of me. And it's making me not want to date certain people who don't look white enough because I'm worried that that's just going to be the way society views me as this kind of like sad failure who couldn't get a white person. You might be feeling disgust or sadness right now because that's what I'm feeling when I think about this. But it's true. And I think the most utility that I can do with that truth is to be honest about it, to talk about it, to explore it. And with it becoming something that I'm really self-aware of, I think I can slowly work on it, counterbalance it, manage it, disprove it consciously, intentionally. Looking at this hierarchy of white supremacy, I can't say, you know, which race is better than which other race. But if I'm really honest and I really look closely, I think the racial group that I have the most racial discrimination against is indigenous people. I recently attended, right before the pandemic, um, this group was meeting to discuss issues around reconciliation. And I felt like I had a real blind spot there and I wanted to learn more. So I went and they showed this video. And in this video, they were interviewing indigenous people about experiences of racism that they had had in their lives. And I noticed with each indigenous person that they interviewed, these stereotypes were immediately popping up in my head. And it was like they were interviewing this man. And I immediately saw this stereotype that, that I othered. I othered it. He was on screen and I, um, I had this association. Oh, someone probably thinks he's a drunk. It's not me. Like my cognitive prefrontal cortex knows that that's just not true. But someone probably thinks that about him. That's the thought that came up. And I realized that the someone is still me. It's my association. Like, yes, I'm sure there are people out there who would judge this guy that way. Like, that's a true thought. But the fact that the first thing that pops into my head when I look at this indigenous man is that someone might think that, I have to own that. That is my stereotype. Even though I've othered it, that is my first association. They've done really interesting studies where they show people pictures of white people and they show people pictures of black people and other races. And they've been able to demonstrate that with white people, majority of people are really quick to associate some kind of positive word. And with black people, people are more likely to associate some kind of negative word. This is true even among black people. So it's not so much that they're explicitly racist against this group. It's that these subtle associations are positive and negative. And so for me with this man, it was so clear that there was a subtle negative association. Even if I didn't own it, even if I didn't consciously believe it anymore, it was there conditioned into me and it was my first impulse. And then they interviewed an indigenous woman and the first thing that popped into my head was fetal alcohol syndrome. The way that she looked and the way that she spoke 
just immediately that was the association, that this person is actually impaired somehow. But then I stepped back and I was like, actually, there's nothing, This that's just this woman's accent because English is not her first language. And the accent of certain indigenous groups, I have immediately connected with stupidity, impairment, um, inebriation. That is my first impulse. But actually, it's just their accent. It's like a French accent or a British accent even. It's, it's just an accent. But it's an accent that to me is burdened by all of this racist conditioning. And that was so shocking to acknowledge to myself that here is this wonderful, beautiful, smart person. And conditioned into me is this deep rejection of her and judgment of her and these horrible, horrible beliefs. It must be so awful for her if she knew that that's what I thought when I looked at her. I would never want to admit that to her because it's so bad and it would hurt her so much, I think. And a lot of judgment comes up when I get sad about this. Like I have no right to be sad about it. Like, and it's probably true that as unpleasant as it is to have this belief, it must be so much more unpleasant to be the recipient of a culture that believes this. But at the same time, having prejudices is such a shitty feeling. It's not something that I want. But it's something that I have. And I think that talking about it is the best way to deal with it. I think being honest about it is the best way to deal with it. I don't think I have to go up to people that I'm prejudiced against and be like, hey, can I unload my prejudices on you? That's not what I mean. But I think there needs to be a movement and a space where people who identify with the idea that they are completely conditioned with racism can be honest for once about it. I am so sick and tired of pretending like I'm not racist. It's not serving me and it's not serving the people that I have prejudices against. I think people of color have been saying all along not only is society racist, but you're racist. You're all racist. And we've all been like twisting in circles, trying to do everything we can to fix it and be right with it. But the one thing we haven't really done is admit to it, like explicitly, categorically admit to each bit of our racial prejudices. And the only thing that's stopping us is shame. Like the, the only thing that is stopping me from being honest about my prejudices is shame. And shame, its job, its whole role is to keep you in the group. Because when we were hunter-gatherers, getting kicked out of the group meant we were going to die. So shame is this life-or-death protective mechanism that says, don't do anything that's going to get you kicked out of the group. And right now, admitting to being racist could get you kicked out of some groups. 
you know, back to the story where I was watching that video about reconciliation and I had all these terrible stereotypes come up about this indigenous woman. And I got so self-protective. Shame said, you have to get rid of this. This is bad. You can't feel this. Don't tell anyone about this. And that shame reaction was all about my survival and protection. It was this like very self-focused, selfish urge. But when I realized that I didn't need to protect myself anymore, I could just let it out. I could just be honest about it. I could feel it. Then the shame passed. And behind it, by expressing all of that ugly truths, I discovered that actually I had a lot of care for that woman. I felt this strong urge, despite the fact that on one level, I was judging her and rejecting her and kind of disgusted by her even. On another level, I really wanted her to be well, and I didn't want her to be hurt by my words, and I didn't want my truth to impact her. I didn't want anyone's truth to negatively impact her. I saw her on one level as this totally beautiful, equal human being. And by acknowledging my racism, I was able to move past the self-defensive stage to see that behind it, there was actually all these other values operating of care and concern for other humans. And when I don't look at my racism and express it and, and talk about it, I'm actually blocking myself from seeing how much I really do care about other people. So there is this kind of utility to going into your racism and moving through it because behind your racism, behind your prejudice and behind your shame, there's a whole bunch of beautiful urges that are being blocked. So we're protecting ourselves needlessly from a threat that doesn't really exist anymore. And it's actually impacting us more in a negative way than it used to. It's, it's, it's negatively impacting our well-being and it's negatively impacting the well-being of other people. And it's just repressing it is not the solution. Hiding it is not the solution. Shaming it is not the solution. It's not like you're just racist or you're just not racist. It's way more complicated than that. Everybody has like the, the adult, mature, conscious them in their prefrontal cortex that is the summation of all that they have learned and decided to be. And then everybody has this childhood conditioning that is, you know, ingrained into us and can be completely opposite of what we believe in and value as an adult. You can be both of those things at once. And in fact, everybody is. And I know a lot of people look at themselves like they can only be one thing. They're either a racist and therefore bad, bad, bad shame, or they're not racist and therefore they're good and better. The truth is you can be and you are both. And the you that is consciously anti-racist is going to be a lot more integrated and strong when it can look at the other you and understand it and own it. The other you, the subconscious you, doesn't have as much power over the conscious you when you make it conscious. When you, when you own that and say, okay, that's also part of me and I understand it and I see it and I get it and I know why it's there and I know where it comes from, then you have control over it instead of it controlling you from the shadows through your threat response, when you're stressed out, when you are most vulnerable, when your prefrontal cortex is shut off. Over the last week, I've been doing a bunch of circles. 
circling, as you may know, is an authentic relating practice where you get together with a group of people and you kind of explore what's happening in the moment. And basically in every circle I've done this week, I've kind of hijacked it and been like, I want to talk about racial prejudice. I want to talk about my racial prejudice. I want to talk about your racial prejudice. And I want to be confessional. Actually, the first time I suggested it, I wasn't even the first person. I couldn't, I couldn't say any of it. I couldn't admit to any of it. Someone else finally was like, you know what? The circle's almost over and we haven't done the thing we said we were going to do. So I'm going to start. And he talked about his family's relationship to certain races. And then someone else shared some other thing. And then I came in and I shared some of my own racial conditioning, like these very specific cases like I've talked about today. And it was, hmm, it was really interesting. It was frightening. I felt sick. I cried. I felt uncomfortable. And then I felt judgmental about my crying and people started empathizing with me and I felt like don't empathize with me this is disgusting there was like such turmoil there was some catharsis as well to finally be honest about something that I thought I could never be honest about and it stimulated more like insight into my racism I started to resonate with what other people were saying and people started resonating with what I was saying and there were some people in the circles who were like I don't have anything to share then there were some people who were like I don't identify as a racist at all I don't think I'm racist and I found that as more people dug deep and revealed the more it helped the rest of us dig deeper and reveal more and some of the people who thought they had nothing to share at the end of the circle were like, wow, actually, a lot is coming up for me now, and I have a lot to think about. And it became clear that it was valuable to me to share really honestly what my racial conditioning was, like literally the specifics of it. And it was valuable to others to hear it because it helped them see that they had it too, and that it was okay for them to investigate it and talk about it. And it's this balance because you don't want it to become this like, oh, well, let's just sit around and be racist. Like, let's just luxuriate in racism. Or you don't. You also don't want it to be just catharsis. You don't want it to be like, ah, I got that off my chest and now I can go on with my life and everything's fine. It's like there has to be some use to it where you're at once owning it and honoring that it's something that you want to overcome. Like I think both of those need to be held as sacred in that kind of space. This is both true and it's something I need to be aware of and I need to talk about and it's something that I need to overcome or that I need to manage. And so then I had this idea to combine what I saw at that AA meeting with what I was experiencing at these circling events around the topic of racism. And I think that there is an opportunity to create groups, which I will call Racism Anonymous. And they are essentially groups where people who identify with having conditioned racial prejudices, or conditioned prejudices of any kind really, can come together and share and talk about explicitly what those racial prejudices are under an understanding that self-awareness is a powerful way to manage that condition 
and with a clear desire to overcome that conditioning. And I think like an AA meeting, it would not involve crosstalk. It would not be about advice. It would not be about judgment. It would not be about commenting on other people's stuff. We would just go around in a round robin style and everyone would get three to five minutes to share what was coming up for them specifically about their own racism. And you can pass because I know that even if you're just there listening, it's going to open you up to the fact that you have this too. So it doesn't have to be like a quid pro quo where like, hey, I shared, so you have to share. The value is in just seeing anyone share honestly what their racial conditioning is and honoring that it's something that they want to change. So I actually think this is something that should happen. I think this is absolutely something that should be started. And I think this is something that literally everyone should consider going to. At Alcoholics Anonymous, there's this kind of liberation that comes from when you just fucking admit it. You finally just say, fuck, I have a problem. I have a problem with alcohol. In this case, there is something liberating about saying, I have a problem with racism. I have a problem with conditioned racism. Against my will, it has gotten inside of me, and I want to be in right relationship with it. I don't want it to control me, and I don't want it to hurt other people. And I think that this group is the most proactive way I can imagine doing that. I think it's great that people are reading books. I think it's great that people are donating. I think it's great that people are educating themselves about the experiences of people of color. All of that is really valuable. But honestly, I think it needs to go further. And I think white people especially, and anyone who thinks that they have racist beliefs conditioned into them of any race, needs to do some kind of work of really understanding what those beliefs are. It's not about pushing it away. I know that it probably feels like the work is to push your racism away, to, to crush it, to destroy it, to squeeze it. But that never works for me. That never works with my shame, and it never works with my homophobia. The thing that has worked for me is to talk about it, be honest about it, really investigate it, really pull it up in all of its ugliness into your consciousness, and then talk about it with other people. That has been the most effective. And I recognize that there's all kinds of logistical issues here. Like, wouldn't it be triggering if a person of color came to one of these meetings and someone was unloading all of the racist beliefs they had about their, you know, identity? Yeah, maybe it would be triggering. So I am not sure exactly how that would work. All I know is that I want to try it. I want to experiment with it. I want to do it and see what works and see what doesn't work. And, and I'm sure that there will be some big glaring errors that will become apparent where people will get triggered or people will kind of luxuriate in some of the racism or it will become more about catharsis than about management, you know. But nonetheless, I think it is worth those mistakes. I think it is worth making some slightly irresponsible errors because the potential, I think, for healing with being finally honest, with having a space, an anonymous space where you can finally explore it, I think the capacity for healing is greater than the mistakes that will come from the early iterations of figuring out how to do this. 
And I, I can't say whether this will be useful for people of color or not. I think everyone is going to have to decide that for themselves. I know as a gay man who's full of homophobia that I'm imagining there are a lot of people of color who also internalized a lot of this white supremacy, this this hierarchy I talked about, which means that in the same way that I feel slightly less valuable and attractive than like the Aryan perfect Superman, that a lot of people of color probably see themselves as low on the hierarchy of value and the hierarchy of attractiveness. And so there might be an opportunity where there are some groups specifically for people of color to examine their own internalized self-hating racism. Or maybe it's just, you know, go to whatever group you feel comfortable. I I don't know. These are the kind of details that need to be worked out. But what I'm saying is I feel like there's an opportunity for this kind of sharing to potentially be useful for everyone under the right circumstances. Like, I feel like I could go to a meeting with straight people and talk about my homophobia and I think there would be something really kind of cathartic and validating for me to hear straight people finally admit to their homophobia. And, I, and I'm not talking about like super racist or super homophobic people. This, this is not geared towards people who used to be part of the KKK or who were ex-skinheads or, you know, it's, this is for like liberal, well-meaning, consciously anti-racist people. I feel like we are the ones who are being the least honest about our racist views. Like, at least the people who are super right-wing conservative are kind of open about their racism. But I feel like a lot of us liberal allies are full of racism, and we talk about it and admit to it the least, which means it probably controls us even more. So if you think this isn't for you, I challenge you to think again. I think this is for everyone. If you don't identify with having racism, then, then maybe not. But it might be interesting to go to one of these meetings and hear people share and see if anything comes up for you. Because in my experience, hearing someone else share and break that shame and taboo can kind of open something up inside of you where you're able to look at something that you'd been hiding from yourself because it was just too shamey. So how is this going to happen? Who is going to spearhead this? You are. That's the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. It is a distributed group. Anyone can lead an AA meeting. So I have put together a kind of preliminary structure for what I'm calling RA or Race Anon or Racism Anonymous. I don't know. Maybe the name will change. And I am going to put that structure in the show notes of this podcast. And I highly encourage you to go and read it and to think about starting your own chapter. And I would hope that a bunch of these different chapters might pop up and experiment with different iterations of the structure. And if you do, please let me know what works, what doesn't work, what's a mistake, what am I missing, what are the blind spots here? I would love for it to evolve into something that really is effective. And, you know, 12-step programs have 12 steps. Well, in the structure that I've created, there, there are not 12 steps. But as my therapist pointed out, one of the most important steps of 12-step is making amends. So I do think that as this idea of RA were to blossom, we would need to add in things like making amends or, you know, certain, maybe there are accountability channels like um, in AA, they have your sponsor. Like maybe stuff like that will evolve. I don't currently know what that is yet. 
I am just seeing that there is great potential in creating a space where people can finally admit to their racism and talk through it. And I think the meetings could expand beyond that. Like each meeting could have a theme. So one meeting might have the theme of anti-black racism. And everybody goes around and shares what comes up for them in their own catalog of conditioned racism around that issue. But then another meeting might be about homophobia or might be about sexism. Or it might be a general meeting where you can talk about any prejudice. Or it might be just about racism in general. There's so many kind of versions of this, and I think it could be really cathartic for everyone to explore all of their prejudices. And there's no question that everyone of every race has prejudices, and it's about time that we all owned up to them. The reason I'm saying this is that that is what I need, and I've had a taste of it this week. I've, I've done it a handful of times unofficially in these other circling groups. And it has been valuable for me already. And it has given me the courage to record this podcast episode, which is coming out a few days late because I stopped it and started it a few times and I just couldn't do it. Like it was just too shamey. But I think I need to be honest. We have to fucking be honest. So if you're intrigued by this idea, if this makes sense to you, then go to my show notes or go to discomfortable.net slash racism and you will see the template I created for this RA meeting. And I want you to take it. I want you to copy it. I want you to adapt it. I want you to try it. Not just with your friends. I actually think this needs to be with strangers the way AA is. If you're just sharing this with your friends, it doesn't feel like you're really being publicly honest about it. I think get a group of strangers together in your community, try this out, and please, if you do, tell me that you did it, tell me what worked, tell me what didn't work. I'm going to do the same thing, and I would love to see, does this idea help anyone else? Is, is, Is this useful? Because I already think it's been useful for me, and I feel like this is the next step. You know, people who have been suffering at the hands of racism have taken it as far as they can. And there's sort of this plateau, like how many more protests, how many more deaths, how much more writing and speaking can there be before the baton gets passed off, I think, to the people who have to take over now. And the people who have to take over now are the racists. And when I say racists, I mean you. I mean everyone who has conditioned prejudice. The, the, the battlefront is no longer in our prefrontal cortex. The battlefront is not our conscious identity, our logical, rational, good self. The battlefield is now us all looking into our unconscious and seeing our own racism and finally just owning up to it and being honest about it in detail. That's what we need in 2020. That's what we need, I think. <laughs>